Okay. Um, as you can see from the size of the book, it was one of my great blessings to you that I did not have you read the entire thing. All right. Um, a big portion of the reason why I didn't have you read the entire thing is that it is that this is a novel that tells the same joke again and again and again and again. So I, I just allow you to fast forward through most of that. Right. Uh, here's the deal. Don Quixote, mistakes, reality, for some imaginary thing that he projects on. And then he and Sancho get beaten up. <laughs> right? That happens like 30 times. Right? That's what the book is about. This is like, like Moby Dick, this is a book that desperately needs an editor. All right. And it would be, even though it's a great book by itself, I'm going to have to give credit where credit is due, it would be twice as good if it were half as long. All right. Um, you have to remember, uh, Cervantes is a contemporary of Shakespeare. You know, this is old. Hmm. The first volume was published in 1605, 1615, the second volume, and it was so popular in the intervening 10 years that other authors, not Cervantes, began to produce knockoffs of it. All right. So when somebody steals your idea, it's a, it's a pretty good sign that you have a good idea. All right. And for such a big book, it's astonishingly simple. All right. In other words, the amazing complexity and depth that we're going to see in, in something comparably sized by Dostoevsky, that's not what this is about. A very different kind of culture produces a very different kind of book. Right. This is outward looking, not inward looking. When he finally looks inward at the end, it kills him. <laughs> <laughs> no, he dies of reality. Right? Reality poisoning. So, wow, I've been mad all this time doing stupid stuff. And then, the people all around him that have been laughing at him said, no, no, that wasn't stupid stuff, that's who you really are. Um, they've been living vicariously through Don Quixote, like you did, all right? We all um, laugh at Don Quixote, and we all wish him continued delusion. <laughs> Which is the funny thing, because what we're laughing at is the delusion. Uh, maybe the delusion is that we're the same ones. In other words, what counts as sanity and madness <laughs> is an open question here. I mean, yeah. Sancho Panza is reliably this worldly and practical, but he gets beaten anyway. Right? In other words, the problem with, with human life is that whether you're an idealist or a realist, it's going to beat up on you regardless of what you do. That's just the way life works. Uh, I think Plato said somewhere that, or maybe Socrates in Plato, said somewhere that everybody is fighting a hard battle, which is true. Nobody's got it easy. If you think that there's someone that has it easy, that means you don't know them well enough. And also, another thing that we can take away from this is that just about everybody seems sane until you get to know them. Mm. <laughs> Which is a messed up thing, but it's true about people. The more you get to know them, the, more, the weirder they, the people get. Like, wow, you aren't what I thought you were. <laughs> well, here's a score. Nobody is. Isn't that awful? So, um, the... Uh, Cervantes has some bad news for Spanish culture. He says, ladies and gentlemen, it's 1605, all right? Um, the Middle Ages are over. Spain has not gotten the message. So it's still producing knights. It still has a landed aristocracy. These guys are caught in a chivalric romance. Every place else they've moved with the times, not Spain. So Cervantes is Spain's Sancho Panza. He keeps tugging at the cloak of his culture, saying, by the way, that's a window. <laughs> <laughs> and then the culture goes nuts on it. And then uh, the culture gets beaten up. 
And then he takes a good thrashing too because he's part of the culture. <laughs> Why is people getting beaten up funny? Ever wondered about that? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I do not know. It's a very interesting problem. Why is getting hit in the face with a pie funny? <laughs> Look, there was a time before which pies had not been invented. And there was humorous pieness floating <laughs> waiting to be instantiated in the material world. And then it happened. And then somebody got hit in the face. And all of a sudden, all that latent laughter <laughs> came forward in a sort of rush. <laughs> Why, why um, the, the Three Stooges, why is poking someone in the eye, calling him a porcupine, humorous? Don't tell me, no, you're a liar, every one of you, everyone you guys likes that, you too. <laughs> I like it too, it's a guilty pleasure. I really like the Three Stooges, I can't say that it's really elevated, but I mean, look, it's every, I've been watching this since I was a kid, and I find it funny now. I know I shouldn't, but I do. All right, we all have those. Those things that we have some uneasy about, but can't help but like, yeah. Do you think that's from from instinct or just mental training that you see someone else finds it funny, so therefore you see it funny, or it's an instinct? Well, that's going to lead us to, a, to an infinite regress. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to start this. Right. And if it's instinctual, strange that this instinct has been hanging there, remember, since the beginning of... of uh, one-celled life, it took four billion years mm -hmm. to get to the point where we could invent the pie so that this clump of cells could find that humorous. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a really weird thing. If it's instinct, what do we need that instinct for? Right. I mean, where did that come from? A gift from God. <laughs> I think, actually, um, laughter is a gift from God. Mm -hmm. um, if you try and find out, I mean, they, I mean, I've actually done some thinking about comedy. It's more mysterious than you might believe. Well, for example, um, what sort of things do we find funny and why are there patterns in them? What are we doing when we laugh at something? You probably have noticed that lizards and dogs don't laugh. So, why us? It's a Wittgensteinian question. If you told a monkey a joke and the monkey didn't laugh at it, is there something wrong with the joke or something wrong with the monkey? <laughs> <laughs> or neither. Yeah. Aristotle says somewhere, it's a, it's a very obtuse line, but funny because it's Aristotle. He says, uh, laughter is like metaphysics, but only he would think that because both involve uh, being able to understand what a thing is. Okay, uh, I have no idea how laughter is like metaphysics, but I'll take his word for it, since Aristotle, you know, is usually fairly reliable. Uh, laughter is like metaphysics. I mean, that sounds like the beginning of a joke itself. You know, it's like a rabbi, a priest, and a minister walk into a bar, and the bartender says, is this some kind of joke? <laughs> All right, so laughter is like metaphysics, which no doubt will be very helpful in our investigation. <laughs> right, because I'm sure that the first thing that popped into your mind when uh, Sancho Panza and Don Quixote got a good beating is, well, welcome to metaphysics. <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell knows what this thing is? But notice, again, similar to what, I, what, to what happened when we did um, Aristophanes, um, these are really old jokes and they're still funny. Every time I teach this, every year, this is still funny. Now, I have to admit that we have a problem here with diminishing returns. The first example of Don Quixote making a mistake and then getting a good beating along with Sancho. All right, that's funny. <laughs> the next chapter, when Don Quixote gets, makes a mistake and gets beaten along with Sancho, that's a little less funny. Um, about someplace like this point, in it, <laughs> it dawns on you that this is the same joke being told again and again, right, which makes it less funny. Yeah. I, the funniest part is not necessarily how he keeps mistaking things, but how he consistently tells Sancho Panza that he knows more than he does, and that he knows what's what's really happening here, and that he assures Sancho Panza in every chapter that he's seeing it clearly. A philosopher. <laughs> you gotta like that. 
I mean, it's it's a great idea for a book. Um, like I said, if it were shorter, I would like it better. <laughs> but as it is, it's still pretty funny. Somebody in the hand? No? Okay. Um, Sancho, Sancho Panza is a realist. Don Quixote is an idealist. Much of human life, and certainly of the Western intellectual tradition, is a kind of interplay between these two tendencies, which get personified here. Now, Cervantes himself has served as a professional soldier in the Spanish army, or actually the European army, because there were some Italian soldiers there too, that defeated Islam at the naval battle of Lepanto in, 17, in 1571. That was a big battle because what it did was drive Islam out of the Mediterranean. On the other hand, sad to say, um, 1571, by the time that the wet, that Christianity or the West had taken control of the Mediterranean, right, the Mediterranean didn't matter anymore because by now we have the Atlantic. And once the Atlantic becomes the dominant sea for trade and communication, um, what that does is marginalize and decrease the importance, first of Islam, but also of Italy. Italy becomes less influential in uh, Western or even or geopolitics after 1492. All right, the focus of the West shifts from the Mediterranean basin to the Atlantic. But Cervantes hasn't been told this because he's living during that process. So at Lepanto, he gets an arm shot off. So he knows about suffering. All comedians know. I mean, are, are particularly acute in their suffering. And uh, he also gets captured and is held by the Muslims for five years until he gets ransomed. So he knows human misery. He knows the uncertainty of human life. And he is proud to be a Spaniard, but also some elements of Spanish culture cannot be reconciled to the life he's led. Try being grandiose when you've been enslaved. All right. um, try talking about the nobility of chivalry and battles and knight errant uh, once your arm's been ripped off. All, right. uh, all that kind of boyish enthusiasm for war stories um, evaporates when you lose a limb. Right? This is no longer romantic or glorious. This is a horror. So human life has many vicissitudes. We're not in control of most of them. So Don Quixote, uh, so Alonzo Chiano seeks refuge by reading chivalric romances. Uh, these are not quite epics because they're not in verse, but they all tell essentially the same story too. There's a knight, he has many virtues. He goes and does many virtuous things. He fights many battles and wins them all. Never gets an arm torn off and goes home and then is virtuous. <laughs> all right, yeah. One of my favorite parts was the little poems addressed from those uh, romantic figures to Don Quixote saying, you are far and above uh, superior to us. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, and of course it goes to Don Quixote's head and he, and he goes mad. But this madness turns out to be a sort of salvation. Right. In other words, it, it could be, and I think there's some justice in the claim, that uh, sanity is overrated. Remember, not every kind of madness is equal. Uh, Don Quixote and Charles Manson are both mad, but they're very different kinds of madness. Don Quixote's madness mostly doesn't harm other people. I mean, occasionally gets his way and imposes it on them. 
But even then, he's not responsible because he's crazy. For the most part, Don Quixote's lack of self-understanding only redounds to him getting beaten. And, of course, his sidekick, who comes along for the ride. And the boy. And the boy. Well, no, the boy's going to get beaten even more. <laughs> right? Don Quixote says, boy, it's a good thing I can, save, I can serve the weak by helping them out. And then he leaves and the, the kid gets beaten. All right? Every time he meets a woman, it's inevitably a great lady. All right? So he gets, in the end, he gets uh, served by these prostitutes that he thinks are great women. And the... The owner of the establishment is a kind of king who can dub him a knight, which he does after his, you know, fasting and vigil and all the rest of that. Just it's a parody of becoming a knight. Yeah. So the very beginning of this story is flawed. The whole time, all these things don't matter because the original point of him getting knighted is completely flawed, and it's just been he's been doing it for so long that he thinks it's um, a legit thing, but. If you just look at it and think about it, if the beginning part is flawed, so the whole, therefore the whole book is yeah, that's not exactly valid. right. Yeah, in other words, this is uh, a separate reality. We get to follow Don Quixote on his journeys into his imagination, All right? Because that's where the book takes place, not Spain. Or, in another sense, since Don Quixote represents Spain, yeah, it's in Spain, but you guys are all out of touch with the reality. I mean, you can take that either way. But Don Quixote is a likable character. He has noble sentiments. He is an elevated individual. All right? And yet, this is a mock epic. All right? So you, you can actually see epic turning into novel. Right. Remember how I emphasized the change in genre? And of course, he's right on schedule, given that Galileo is being forced into his cloister. Yeah. Why is it that, why is it that the novel begins by mocking the tradition that came before it? I'm tempted to say that just about every artistic change does something like that. All right. In other words, why change unless there's something wrong with what's been done? And one of the things that people are, uh, that artists are often at labor to do is to show everybody why I have to do something new. Think of Picasso facing the photograph. Well, um, nobody, even me, can create a, more, a better representational view of the way the eye sees the world than some kid with a camera. So what do I have to do? I create abstract art which is moving and powerful, but is not trying to be representational in the way that Renaissance art was. All right? So um, you, have, you have to understand that it's not from a lack of ability that someone like, that non-representational artists create the art they do. It's that they're trying to do something new, something, something as a, that's an alternative. Because um, the project, which had been started uh, in the 13th century by the earliest of the Renaissance painters using perspective to represent the world as the human eye sees it, that project is finished. Right? You sometimes nowadays see people tr trying to go back and uh, revive that. And it's, it's a school of art called photorealism. But what's weird about photorealism is that these are not pictures, that these paintings are not pictures of things. They're pictures of photographs. Mm, that's very weird. All right. And the idea is that you're trying to create something that is as close as you can to being indistinguishable from a photograph. All right. Okay. Don Quixote wants us to look at human life and find out that for the most part, most of us, most of the time, have no idea what's going on. All right? Um, you will find this, for example, when you graduate from college. You will look back on that and say, why? I, I was mad as a hatter. And the things that I thought I knew, I mostly didn't. Think of it this way. If you don't change any of your opinions between now and the age of 30, you are mentally dead. 
So a lot of the stuff that you're really excited about now, no. And it's not that I'm not excited about it, it's that you're not going to be excited about it. So chill. <laughs> right? I, I know, uh, I'd say this to my own daughters too, look, I understand that you know a great deal. Um, give it five years and we'll talk about it. All right, and then we'll see what happens. If you still know it then, then we may want to discuss it. But for now, um, you're just enthusiastic. It comes with the age. I've been gradually losing my enthusiasm all through my life. <laughs> and that comes. Uh, okay, so Don Quixote is going to get knighted by the innkeeper. He's going to get waited on. And it turns out being crazy is fun. And I can testify to that. That's true. <laughs> um, everyone else is eating this crappy, moldy bread and this dried fish. And even uh, Sancho says, I'm not eating this. This is really awful. On the other hand, Don Quixote says, I've never seen better food. And he, he eats it with relish because he's in La La Land. All right, who's better off here? Everybody else is eating crappy food. Don Quixote is really <laughs> living large. The idea is, of course, uh, there's a sense in which reality is subjective. And if you don't interfere with his enjoyment of moldy bread and salt fish, um, he's having a lot better time than you are. Are we better off knowing what's going on or not? That's a tricky question. I think, I think there's two different answers to that. I think one makes you happier, but the other is like, gets you more in touch with yourself. I think, because like he could, he could be more in touch with reality, but not be happier, but the other one could just make him happier. So I think there's two ends to it, I guess. Okay. Say. Um, is being in touch with yourself a good thing? And if so, why? What do you do when you're in touch with yourself? I feel like you're able to understand, like, you're... I'm not sure which one would be... I think being in touch with yourself would be better because you want to reach an end goal and, and obviously like heaven or an afterlife. Being happy kind of just keeps you in the moment and like satisfied. But it's not ultimately better overall, but temporarily. Does Don Quixote go to heaven? Depends. One of the last lines of the book says, Oh happy man that lived mad but died sane. It's an interesting point. Um, it's also a statement about the real world that reality is overrated along with sanity. One of the really interesting things to me about this book is that there are, there are two tendencies in the human psyche, roughly corresponding to the left brain and the right brain, one of wonder and one of sort of technical realism. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the Middle Ages, the... the they work very hard to synthesize those two views, so that the, the the stars were living things, but they also were very logically consistent, uh, and they, that that idea spread to every aspect of the of their experience that they were unifying these two ways of seeing reality. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, when middle middle ages ended, those two parts of the brain got bi bifurcated because they started saying, no, reality is just this mechanistic thing. Mm -hmm. And so the only place where you could go for wonder was somewhere not real. Mm -hmm. uh, and so then we have the Enlightenment and the Romanticism, and we have Don Quixote and Sancho Panza uh, with just these two parts of the human psyche at war. Okay, I mean, what we have is imagination and experience. And uh, I, I think a, a medieval would say, but experience is actually wonderful. Uh, yeah, I think that's possible. I, I think it's possibly true. I think it's more likely to be true of a medieval scholar than a medieval serf. Yes, this is true. Yeah, cathedrals are different. Well, cathedrals might be, but the serfs go there once a year for Easter. Yeah, so is it necessarily like a bad thing to have this childlike imagination? where you're just in pure like enjoyment all the time. Because I think a lot of times we're like, oh, I wish we could just have that like bliss and not, and not um, 
have to be stressing about everything. And I mean, it seems like he's just enjoying life like a, like a child is. Yeah, and uh, he doesn't worry about anything, mm -hmm. and uh, he's perfectly fulfilled. There's nothing he's longing for that he doesn't have. Yeah. I think there's something to the idea of the importance of being happy and being content with what you have, um, but it's also important to know yourself. I mean, we spent all of last semester talking about how important it is to know yourself. Um, and if you don't, you can't live virtuously, and mm -hmm. you can't fix your problems. But what's interesting to me is that as he's dying, they say that Don Quixote earns the name of good even when he was insane. So, like, do you actually have to be sane to know what's good and what's not? Mm -hmm. This is leading up to something we're doing in the fall. Questions of ethics and what makes an action right or wrong. Is it the consequences of the action, which is what uh, Sancho thinks, you know, nothing, no harm, no foul, or is it the intention behind the action with Khan? If it's the intent, as far as I can see, Don Quixote has had nothing but good intentions. Mm -hmm. And I think that means that it's impossible for him to have committed mortal sin. <laughs> I mean, in other words, there's something very strange going on in your mind when you got to the point where you can't commit mortal sin <laughs> because you, you're, you, have, you don't understand yourself or the world around you especially well. I mean, he gets a, he gets, in other words, he gets a blank check, a pass, because he's crazy. But it turns out that his craziness has mostly been for the good, not in the case of the boy who was being beaten is now going to be beaten even more. And there's lots of cases like that all through the book. I can help you out, save you 900 pages of reading. All right. Um, Don Quixote is mostly a force for good. But although he labors very hard to help other people, he can't, it seems he can't help himself. And Sancho Panza would like to help him, but doesn't know how. Even Sancho Panza begins to take advantage of his madness. This is great. Sancho becomes his sidekick when um, Don Quixote, or a poor man, uh, says, would you like to become my squire? I'm going to be a knight errant, and if you want to come with me, I will make you the king of someplace once I conquer. Well, okay, he does. <laughs> and he becomes a, a king, and he's not happy. <laughs> All right. So it turns out that sanity may be at odds with happiness. This is not an Aristotelian kind of eudaimonia. Rather, he's moving about the world aimlessly, looking for the opportunity to be chivalric. Yeah. I think that going along with that, like if you are sane, you realize that happiness is not ultimately in this life. Whereas if you're not sane... You don't think Aristotle was sane? No, I, he was sane. Okay, but he thought you could have happiness in this life. It's what the Nicomachean ethics are about. Well, I guess it's prior to Christianity, too. Plenty of people after Christianity mm -hmm. also as well. Spinoza, Hobbes. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> well, then I guess it's a it's a point of judging their life and seeing if they were actually. That's it. Happy. Yeah. Oh. Be a little less quick with the generalization, stop mm -hmm. and look. Mm -hmm. right, you know, we're thrashing out a question. That's something you gotta look for. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Sancho Panza is the brains of the outfit, which means we're in trouble. Okay. Um, he tries to curb Don Quixote's madness and is incapable of doing so. He is doing it because he thinks he's gonna get some great you know, position as a king. And towards the end, um, he and Don Quixote have transgressed and are engaged in uh, and, and have agreed, or Don Quixote agrees on behalf of Sancho, but that both of them will flagellate themselves right, in, as penance for their sins. Now, Sancho says, so you're going to flagellate yourself and then you're going to beat me. He says, I have an idea. I'm going to walk into that group of trees here. I'm going to flagellate myself too. Okay. Walks into the trees and wails on the trees and goes, ow, ow, ow. And Don Quixote says, yeah, really lay it on. <laughs> and then he comes back out, we've taken care of that. 
Why is somebody beating themselves? Or not beating Why is that funny? You see how perverse human beings are. Yes, it's funny. But in a very perverse way. So everybody laughs at Don Quixote, but nobody laughs at his intentions. And that's actually, I mean, in other words, he's a strange kind of Kantian artifact. The only good thing is a good will, and I haven't seen Don Quixote want anything that was bad. We are clearly entering a new age with a book like this. We are turning the, the, the corner. Right? It's not an accident that he's in a, a contemporary of Shakespeare. All right? uh, we have a new kind of world. We've encountered uh, the new world. And we also have a new intellectual context and we have new arts emerging. All right? Here we, we are watching the emergence of the novel from the epic. Yeah. One of the fascinating things to me about the introduction is that I, I realize that he's not just satirizing the knight, but he's also satirizing the literary culture of the Middle Ages. The people who write books like this, so he's part of the joke. Yeah, and the, the culture of the authority of the ancients, is he, like, he's very careful to completely undermine that. And that's necessary for the novel to exist because a, a novel never uh, references the ancients that way. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's completely successful in that. Like, the, he completely undermines the literary culture, and ever since we don't make references to Aristotle casually. Yeah, that's exactly right. We're living in a new age. Right? The Middle Ages are over, modernity has begun, and Spain is late to the party. Okay? Okay, now uh, uh, in the author's diff uh, there are two two um, two volumes. One written in six, one published in sixteen oh five, the other one sixteen fifteen, and the second volume is more or less indistinguishable from the first. It's the same joke. It's going to get told again and again and again. The interesting parts of it mostly are the beginning and the end. The beginning of the author's preface to volume one. I particularly like that. <clears throat> he asked his friend how to fix it, and do not do this with your papers. The friend said, insert random Latin phrases, footnotes in a bibliography. <laughs> now I have seen too many papers <laughs> that answer that description. <laughs> random Latin phrase papers, put in a bibliography, and footnotes, and you should be fine. Again, uh, there's no small part of intellectual life that pretty much follows that. Those books are considerably less, val less valuable than this one, Bob <laughs> Madden. <laughs> All right? And then at the beginning of, in the author's preface to volume two, he says, look, some nitwit pre pretending to be me has usurped Don Quixote and written a very bad volume. All right? that claims to be written by me, but it's not. Remember that copyright is very hard to enforce back then. So he says, uh, get rid of that, because that false Quixote is not worth, is unworthy of our hero. And then let me write another 400 pages um, telling you the same joke again and again and again. Um, one thing worth thinking about, this is worth considering, is that every great comedian is capable of pathos, in the sense that every great comedian is capable of making you laugh, but also cap capable of making you feel sad and feel pity for the comic hero. Here's the deal. Comic heroes are funny if and only if they don't know what they're doing. Think about how many twins separated at birth fail to recognize one another in Shakespearean comedies. When it happens again, and then everybody gets married. <laughs> All right? I mean, that's how it works. All right? So, people, people's mistakes are humorous. And the pain that they get 
from that is mostly humorous. Right? As long as it isn't lethal, so you don't get that pathos. But if a comic hero ever realizes what a fool he is, what a jerk he is, how bumbling he is, um, he realizes what a worm he is, and then you can't help but feel bad for him. Think about, uh, I don't know, Woody Allen being rejected by, you know, whatever the leading lady is in whatever comedy he's playing, right? He realizes he's a jerk with red hair and he's a neurotic New Yorker and no woman would want him. Okay. Um, that's heartbreaking. Think about, uh, think about Charlie Chaplin in modern times. He's at that, uh, conveyor belt and the conveyor belt goes faster and faster but you get sucked into it right? this is this goes from being humorous to being pathetic to being sad and what is required for that change is self consciousness the comic hero if he finds out who he is is ashamed because he's a fool and if that happens he's been played by you know some like by some trickster like we saw in Mandragola. The reason why the old man in Mandragola cannot find out that his wife has been seduced is that that would generate pathos. He would feel bad for the old man. So, comedy requires mistakes and deception. If we are freed from that, comedy disappears. and We don't get tragedy. Because remember, tragedy requires superior people doing superior stuff, causing their own downfall. When an inferior person does stupid stuff and causes their own downfall, that's merely pathetic. That's not tragic. Comedy is about types of people. Don Quixote is the idealist. All idealists are quixotic. It actually turned into an adjective. Right, for people that undertake impossible, unrealistic tasks. And yet, there's something really valuable in this aspiration, in this hope for something more. How will we challenge the boundaries of human life if we don't push the envelope? If we don't try and do what people say is impossible, the impossible will never get done. And once in a while, the impossible happens. So, Don Quixote um, is the object of everybody's laughter, but not the object of everybody's scorn. Crazy old man. But, you know, he kind of brightens up the day, and he reminds you that, well, you know, the things you worry about, they're overrated. And the fact that you're more realistic than he is doesn't necessarily, probably, in fact, doesn't make you happier. Where ignorance is bliss, it's folly to be wise. And so uh, we come to the end, and the end, well, actually, I don't think of one, one, one exception. If you look at all the comedians, all the funny people that you can think of, it, you know, on stage, on, in film, in novels, or in writing, um, just about all of them can get that pathos. And yet they always do it, they all do it in the same way. By having the comic hero that we've been laughing at realize we've been laughing at him and why, and then he becomes ashamed and unhappy. Why? Because he finally realizes what he is. In other words, the tragic hero has to figure out before he dies who he really is. The comic hero, if he wants to stay comic and remain funny, can never be allowed to know who he is and what he is. That would be sad. Why? Because people are mostly sympathetic to our own kind. And because we know we've played the fool ourselves more than once. Remember that old Smokey Robinson song, Everybody Plays the Fool, when it comes to sex, when it comes to love? Absolutely, there's no exception to the rule, and I mean you. <laughs> Don't tell me differently. I used to be your age. <laughs> Do not tell me differently. <laughs> right. um, everybody plays the fool. Right. And as you get a little older, you get jilted, you deal with things as they come your way, um, you realize that 
yeah, I've played the fool too. I look back on that and I was absolutely crazy. You're in good company because everybody works that way. All right? Comedy reveals something about human nature that, strangely enough, we need reality, but we also need illusions to survive. Some of our mistakes turn out to be life-giving rather than threatening. For example, we all, as human beings, are under the illusion that life goes on forever. Nay, at your age, it's, a, it's a, an excusable mistake. At my age, it's not. Right. But we all work on the assumption that oh, we do our best to avert our eyes from the natural course of human existence. Okay, now, usually, tragedies end in death and comedies end in marriage, but Don Quixote can't get married. Instead, he's going to leave his meager possessions to his niece and insist that she marries someone that doesn't read chivalric romances. So this ends in a marriage, but not in a marriage separate, not a marriage of the comic hero. Instead... The end of the book, the fog lifts. Alonzo Keanu realizes that he's Alonzo Keanu, not Don Quixote de la Mancha. His horse, Rosinante, is not a sturdy charger, a big war horse. It's a skin and bones old mare, just barely carries him around. The ladies around him are hookers, not aristocrats. And he has spent his life pursuing a dream, a shimmer, something that isn't real. And he says, I'm going to lie down. <coughs> and I'm never going to read these romances anymore. And not only am I never going to read these romances anymore, I'm never going to go out as a knight errant. In other words, there's no volume three of Don Quixote. Instead, he takes ill, and this is a sickness unto death. And he's not thwarted by any of his imaginary encounters with monsters. He's thwarted by reality. What kills him is an overdose of the here and now. Now, what is most remarkable here is that in this deathbed scene, we're getting our pathos here. Remember what I said? Every comedian can elicit pathos. I think that's generally true. The only person, the only comedian that I can think of that I don't think can elicit pathos um, and he's a great comedian, is Groucho Marx. He's too much of a smartass. Right? He knows he's a smartass with a cigar, but you know, it, he never gets to the point where he says, wow, I've been a damn fool. All of his comedy is based upon the idea that people around him are idiots. But with that exception, every comedian can elicit pathos, which is different from the tragic emotion because it's an inferior kind of recognition and self-understanding and uh, acceptance of death. And Don Quixote turns back into Alonzo Keanu and the people around him who used to laugh, him, laugh at him all the time, they keep telling him, no, you're Don Quixote, you're not Alonzo Keanu. Get up, get on the horse and go and you know, do something fabulous, do something stupid, uh, keep us all entertained. Now, part of it is that they really like the entertainment. Part of it is that they've been vicariously living through Don Quixote. We all respect it. We all respect idealism. And as Kierkegaard says, purity of the heart is the will to one thing. It's a beautiful line. 
And once he finds out who he really is and stops his comic night errantry, the world is a lesser place. The world has been diminished for the loss of Don Quixote in a way that it's not diminished by the loss of Alonzo Keanu. It turns out everybody else's sanity depends on his sanity, on his insanity, because everybody else's sanity, where moldy bread is moldy bread, has not been making them happy. The happy person in this gigantic novel is only crazy Don Quixote. Everybody else ends up disappointed, short-changed, otherwise attacked, generally for no reason. I mean, story after story, Mambrino's helmet, which a barber has a wash basin so you can shave people. Uh, Don Quixote thinks it's a golden helmet and goes and wails on the barber until the barber comes back and wails on him and all the barbers then wail on him and Sancho. Again, it's the same joke being told again and again. You have to remember how this will have been encountered in 17th century Spain. Remember that mass popular literacy doesn't exist there or anyplace else yet. It means that if you, you could find a literate person, but it's one in 20 or one in 50, something like that, most people cannot read and write. So if you're traveling or if you're making, a, say, a pilgrimage to St. James Campostella, you stay in an inn overnight. And uh, to finish the night's amusements, we have dinner, we have some drinks, uh, someone will open up a copy of Don Quixote and read aloud one of the stories. And that will be a kind of uh, standalone experience of Don Quixote. Now, you can do this on the road to Campostella, um, and you can hear story after story, but they're much more bearable, they're much more entertaining and lighter if you are getting them one at a time. Because they're separate. The book has this kind of cellular structure. There's not much development from one episode to another. It's just a different way of being mistaken and a different way of getting beaten. So, um, this is the kind of book that was not meant to be uh, consumed in a sitting. The way other, there are many other books that are intended to be complete holes. You're supposed to sit down and, and motor through them. All right. Uh, on the other hand, this is meant to be touched upon lightly for a very long period of time, and is again the connection to epic. Uh, this is. Although it's a printed work, it is primarily uh, disseminated as an oral culture. Remember, you can't get the novel full grown until you have people to read it. We don't have that yet. Was Don Quixote a real character, like a real person in Spain? No. He wasn't? Okay. Uh, This is... Now he's become sort of uh, the... The uh, image of Spanish literature. In other words, this is the landmark in Spanish literature. I mean, there's other interesting stuff, but nothing touches this. He is in Spanish literature to a great extent what Shakespeare is in English literature. What is Cervantes' like goal of writing this? Then? What his goal was, first of all, um, to tell his culture how badly uh, askew it was. Look, guys, it's 1600. <laughs> the Middle Ages are over. We discovered America more than a century ago. Mm-hmm. Give up on the idea of landed aristocracy and knight errantry. Right. All those affectations made sense 300 years ago. They don't make any sense now. And yet, on the other hand, he says, look, Spain doesn't know what's going on, but I still admire it and like Spain anyway, sort of. Because... Although we laugh at Don Quixote's misdeeds, nobody laughs at his intentions. Yeah. When this story is adapted into movies and plays like The Man of La Mancha, very often they focus on that element of sort of admiration for Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of the, there's the, the song, uh, To Dream the Impossible Dream, 
to fight the unbeatable foe. And it's sort of like this, we all sort of wish that we could be as idealistic as Don Quixote. Um, yeah, he's the personification of human aspiration, which sometimes gets you beaten up and sometimes is foolish. But in other, but at other times, it's um, constitutive and redemptive for our species. It's guys like this, the great crazies, that push the envelope. I mean, look at someone, many people nowadays, the ones that become crazy are the ones that do what is regarded as impossible. Think of somebody like Elon Musk. Said, I'm gonna get real, I'm gonna get real rich building something that doesn't exist, which is electric cars. And then after you do that, I'm going to the moon. Okay, uh, you know, he's a, a strange guy, but unless you are a visionary of some kind, um, you don't push the envelope. You follow the, the, uh, the ruts in the road, and that means that you never achieve those great outcomes. You can't do that by being conventional. Yeah. The, the situation that Cervantes finds himself in reminds me, uh, in a way, of a situation Plato found himself in. Hmm. That he's, he's in a culture that has inherited these literary epics that are confusing everyone and putting us in wars that are problematic. Uh, they, they, they have the, the same hero worship uh, for these knights that uh, Greece had for the Homeric heroes. That's right, that's a good point, okay. But what Plato does is he at least thinks he discovers a reality which is far better and then comes up with a new hero to replace. Intellectual heroes. Right, someone, right. To, someone to replace the Homeric heroes. And for, and for uh, Cervantes, um, he would listen to Plato's tell him this and just roll his eyes saying, look, let me explain the situation to you. Yeah, no, he, he would send Sancho Panza in. Right, yeah, you, you need to talk. Give Plato a talking, or Socrates a talking to. In some ways, um, Plato's Sancho Panza is Aristotle. Yeah, it's true. Hmm. So what would Cervantes want to replace this with then? Get well, um, he wouldn't replace it with an intellectual hero. He would say, um, we might want an in intermittent or moderate kind of idealism that has some interaction with the world, but is not um, closed off to new possibilities. I mean, Don Quixote dies, but the spirit of Don Quixote lives. So, is he saying, like, we need religion, we need Christianity? Mm -hmm. he, he thinks we need both of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, he also thinks that we need to... Uh, he thinks that hope is a Christian virtue, and it, which is not something that Plato could sign on to. Right? So, yeah, we need madness in order to kick sanity in the ass once in a while. Because sanity can be as deadening as madness. It can lead to its own unhappy consequences. And the fact that it's coming from realism as opposed to idealism is no compensation. Yeah, Paul? Um, so no one was laughing at the intentions of Spanish culture were to take over the planet in the name of the Spanish royal family and Catholicism. And they actually took a pretty good shot at that um, in the century before this. And so how would have, how would have retaining um, chivalry and knighthood, how would that have contributed to that was a big portion of what the conquistadors wanted. They wanted money, but what they wanted was to raise their social status, which they could do if they uh, engaged in some signal great action for the king. The king could say, up you go. All right. So the conquistadors, they want to get rich, and they want to become viceroys. They want to become politically influential in the new world. Um, they're also, they also would like, as a kind of afterthought, to convert the natives to Catholicism. All right. But mostly what they want to do is rise in a very rigid social structure where rising is impossible. Compare the social structure of say Shakespeare's England and Cervantes' Spain. 
in England, we're having the rise of commercial capitalism, the rise of, of, of rich merchants that sell wool. Remember the sheep that eat men? Okay, that doesn't happen in Spain. In Spain, they still have the dignidad, which is a rule of aristocracy, which says that any time an aristocrat turns his hand towards commerce or uh, productive activity or any kind of business, uh, they treat that the way the Greeks treated banausia, which is the ancient Greek word for money grubbing. And as soon as that happens, you're no longer an aristocrat. So no aristocrat would risk his status either by engaging in trade or by marrying his impoverished children, which are, of which there is a fair number, into a commercial family because they would, it would be déclassé. Right. So um, in England, on the other hand, as the aristocrats were losing ground to the price revolution that comes with all the money coming in from the new world, um, they married into great commercial families. And so you had the welding together of commerce and aristocracy, which eventually held on. I mean, England still has landed aristocrats, but the aristocratic part of it um, is not a big deal anymore. It's organized around money. Whereas um, that, that convergence of the aristocrats and wealthy merchants just never happened in Spain. Right? That's part of why when the Spanish get all this money from the New World and they want to buy armaments, which is their favorite thing to do, they buy armaments not, in, not by setting up factories in Spain. Uh, an aristocrat wouldn't do a thing like that. You send out an order to metallurgists or cannon founders in Belgium or the Netherlands or northern Germany, and you pay cash on the line for really good cannons. But what that means is, is that your is that that throughput of money right, is uh, expanding the armaments industry in what will eventually become Protestant Europe. Right. So uh, Spain to this day is much less uh, commercially and industrially developed than, than uh, places like the Netherlands, the Low Countries, England, and that's the reason why they held on to the Middle Ages too long. This is a, a sign that it's about time to move with the times, but too little too late. Right. And uh, this is where I wanted to call halftime in our reading of the Western tradition. Now, of course, because I've had the, the unusual luxury of being able to move my course from one year to two years, as you will acknowledge, it's a very different course because, well, I'm not quite as driven to get to max out every week. Now, of course, if it were up to me, I'd go from two years to four years and really give me some reading, but I can't do that. All right. I mean, there's always more to read. Just get used to that fact. It's, going to, it's never going to change till you die. Um, but this is halftime. Why did I choose this? Well, we're on the, the, the brink of uh, a new age. We're going to see the rise of modern natural science. It's already started happening, but people don't notice it. Remember that when you get the first new impulses in a science, there are like half a dozen people that know about this new breakthrough, right? Just like now, if someone were to connect gravity and magnetism, right, you know, at some institute for advanced study, um, we would honestly say, oh, finally. I mean, it'd be a great thing if they could, but none of us knows jack about the relationship between magnetism and gravity. And, um, it may have some practical significance for our grandchildren, but me, I don't know what's going on. Well, remember, um, 1543, Copernicus publishes his book on the heavens, and a guy named Vesalius publishes an anatomy, a ge uh, an anatomy, a very carefully uh, illustrated account of the parts of the human body. At least he takes it apart, and he's a professor of medicine. What's his name? Vesalius, V-E-S-A-L-I-U-S. Both of them published their groundbreaking books. 1543, the scientific revolution is underway. A small fraction of 1% of Europe is aware of that. All right. 
So Don, clearly Cervantes doesn't know Byron. He's not stupid, it's just that he, he's not a specialist. Who reads these books in Latin that almost nobody he had access to? And then once you get access, you, you need a lot of mathematical background to be able to do uh, some uh, Copernicus, to follow why uh, his model is better than the geocentric model. All right. So remember that there's always a lag time when you get a scientific revolution. It takes a while. And it's the length, length of the lag time is contingent upon the kind of communications that the society has. If communications are really weak, like you see in the Roman Empire, somebody can, you know, like Galen, the great physician, can think something up and nobody in the provinces knows about it, you know. Someone explained to me recently that ancient Greece had steam power technology, but they only used it for uh, mythic rituals and never shared it with anyone, so it never took on. Maybe. Uh, we, we, we have the, what they used to do is just to open the doors of the temple and it looked really magical because you lit a fire and then the steam opened the doors. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Uh, missed opportunity. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, so, where, where we are now is at the half point, right? You have a paper to write and I want it in a week. Here's the deal. It has to be at noon. I'm going to be at my office at noon on Monday. Your paper must be at my office by noon on Monday. Hard copy there. The reason why it must be, and why it's futile to ask for an extension, is because that's the last day that I can possibly hand in grades. Are there any questions about that? <laughs> All right. So, uh, uh, an upset email will not change the dates. All right. Ask you for an extension, I can't help you. I'll give you, you know, because I built all the extensions I can into this already. All right? So you got to get something written. Most of you have been in contact with me about your proposed questions. That's all to the good. I hope that I have made your life miserable <laughs> by asking you what you mean <laughs> and then having you not know. <laughs> That's actually good for you. Questions about questions. What the hell did you expect? <laughs> That's all I do. All right. So um, I want a paper from you. This is where it ends, and you have reading for the summer. I know. It's awful. Get used to it. All right. Um, if you want to talk about your paper, I'll be up at my office now. If you want to talk about your question, I'm happy to do so. If you just want to do it with email, that's okay too. Okay? Um, but you must get Shakespeare and Cervantes into your essay. You figure out how to shoehorn them into your question. <laughs> All right? Uh, the easier and more natural you make that look, the better the question is. Okay? Questions about this question? That's all you're stuck with is questions about questions. Well, here's the deal. All right, I'll let you go with this. Um, everybody's going to do fine in this class, right? You really don't have to get all psycho about your grade. It's just not that big a deal. Um, I figure anybody that's actually, that can give me reason to believe they've read these books deserves a break, right? Um, I, no, more than once, I mean, I, I frequently give out um, A's to people I think are just wrong. I mean, it's okay to be wrong. If you're wrong in an interesting way, actually, that's a real achievement. All right. Um, on the other hand, um, it's also easy to get a C, right? and you do that by telling me what I already told you, because I know what I think. So there's no point in having you tell me that in the paper. I want to know what you think, and you're supposed to think something. Anybody find that mysterious? Okay. Uh, to those of you that were involved in the Shakespeare production, congratulations. It was admirable. I'm very proud of it. I think it's one of the best things at Ave. And uh, now, because the play is over, um, get back to work. <laughs> I don't want to hear any more about how much you push things off. Don't bother to set up a flare because I can't help you. Um, now you have to get things together. All right. So I'll be up in my office if you want to chat. Shoot me an email if you're uncertain or if you want to do that, handle the question that way. Questions about these questions? All right, then. Um, do some writing. 
and then I will shoot you uh, a syllabus for the fall, and it'll give you all kinds of things to think and read about. And uh, my children have looked at my syllabus and said, Dad, you want to make everybody a nerd like you? <laughs> <laughs> no, my, my, girl, my daughters have no interest in the great books, and the reason why is because they said, Dad, everything reminds you of a book. We sit down at the table. String beans remind you of a particular book. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing that doesn't remind you of a book. We don't want to do that. And my, one of my daughters is getting a PhD, but not in the great books because you know, that's already been done. <laughs> All right, that being said, I will be upstairs. Good luck. And you did a good job this year. I mean, you know, I know that you work.